What's up, everyone? This is Steinfeld Talks, episode seven, I believe. It's August 13th, 2020. My guest today is Zach Chabatari. He is an awesome dude. He we used to be my roommate, and he is never short of words or opinions. So I'm very excited <laughs> to have him on. Zach, how that's, are you doing? That's fairly accurate, yeah. <laughs> I probably have too many opinions. I could, I could probably afford to have less opinions about things. You should have your own podcast. Uh, no, no, I'd say a lot of things I'd regret. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want people to know my opinions that much. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. What, what have you, uh, what have you been thinking about lately? What do you need to, um, to get? Uh, I guess, yeah, the reason I, probably the main thing I want to talk about is just coronavirus in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I'd start out by saying like uh, a couple things I heard you guys talking about on the episode you did with Raph um, that I think are worth talking about is uh, you guys were talking about the idea of like antibodies, you know, do the antibodies actually impart immunity? Um, mm-hmm. Like he was saying, you know, about him, like, should he be concerned about catching it again? You know, those kind of things. And from what I can tell, basically from what I've seen, and it's still nobody really knows, you know, that the research tends to suggest that, you're looking anywhere from I've seen as low as two weeks of immunity to eight months on the high end is mm-hmm. what I've seen so far in, in current animal studies. So a lot of that is monkey studies um, that they've done because they're still in the early trials of doing vaccines. And so right now what they're, they're seeing with vaccine trials is that when they give people the vaccine, they produce a shit ton of antibodies, right? They've identified what the quote-unquote antibody is to coronavirus this specific strain and they see that the immune response from the vaccine is actually much stronger than the natural immune response meaning that you produce a lot more antibodies when you're exposed to the vaccine than you would say if you were just RAF and you just had you know contracted the virus naturally Mm -hmm. and so what they're hoping is that the vaccine actually imparts immunity for some significant amount of time but it still remains to be seen. But there is some strong evidence that it does at least pro- provide some temporary immunity, which is a good, you know, a good sign. Because <laughs> if we got to the case where it's like, there is no immunity whatsoever to this disease, that's some real <laughs> fucked up shit. You know, yeah. that's when we really long-term implications. Yeah, I mean, eight, eight months isn't so good either, though. Yeah. That's pretty yeah, so that's, well, that's the thing, like, it's not great, but here's the thing. That's the low end. We still don't, we still don't know. We still don't really know. Like this, uh, this one thing I want to talk about a lot about too, is like the, I think people often don't understand the limitations of science, Mm -hmm. you know, and how hard it is to do science. I mean, you and I are both people on a scientific profession, Mm -hmm. right? And we can both tell you probably how many hours we spent doing fucking insane amount of work to find like very little amounts of answers just the the hours i spent today just like making graphs and like moving <laughs> like little uh graph ac- um graph uh figures and uh the keys just around is i mean that that part alone is uh yeah. <laughs> is a lot of a lot of work but i mean just think of it this way right like how many times have you gone to the end of an experiment and you're like most of the time I don't know what, how much I learned from that, you know, <laughs> I don't know what, how much of that data is actually usable. Like, you know, and then on top of that, it's like, 
anytime you're trying to tease out the stuff, right. And you're trying to study something, there's a margin of error. And mm -hmm. so I think one thing that people don't often think about is that science as a discipline is all about that margin of error. That's really what, that's what we're doing when we do science. I mean, obviously we're trying to get an accurate estimate, but what makes science an actual discipline and not just guesswork is that you actually have some ability to say like, I have this much margin of error, especially when it comes to more quantitative studies, right? Like, so, very, sorry, go so I just, I think that a lot of people are very surprised that the, that the information is changing so rapidly. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's not surprising at all because all of these studies, you read them and they have huge margin of error. You know, you're, you're talking, they'll say like, uh, well, we believe it if we impart immunity for four months, uh, but we're looking at anywhere from one month to, to two years. You know so what I'm saying? We're like We're talking about things like standard deviation or standard error of the mean when you say margin of error. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the time, I mean, not always, right? Like, you know, it depends on really the measurement you're, you're trying to do. Different forms of error. Yeah, but yeah. for the most part, there's some range of error that's presented with an average out most likely probable outcome right based mm -hmm. on the research that you've done and the margin of error on these things is crazy high right now and actually we have narrowed it a lot like like for example the uh, fatality rate is probably a good example of this right like when the pandemic first started the only way we could tell how fatal it was but it was looking at the total number of cases we had right mm -hmm. and that total number of cases was totally limited by testing it was impossible to get a test for i mean it's still not even that easy to get a test but like when you first happened you had to have known contact with someone who had coronavirus right mm -hmm. well Which, here's um so apparently uh, the university of vermont is requiring all of their students including grad students to get tested and so they, they actually sent me a, an at-home test to take. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Is it, what's it, uh, mouth? Like saliva. Nose? I haven't done it yet. Oh, that's pretty easy. I, so I did the nose one. It wasn't that bad. I mean, it, was, it wasn't pleasant, but, like, okay. it, was, it was manageable. But the mouth one's easy, you know? I've, I keep hearing anything from, like, minor inconvenience to they're poking my brain. <laughs> I mean, oh, you, it feels like they're poking your brain. Don't get me <laughs> wrong. Like it, it is definitely not pleasant. But mm -hmm. you know, I, I, the one thing that was funny too is that when I had it done, the doctor handed me a tissue, and he's like, "You're gonna cry," and I'm like, "Hmm," I'm like, "Nah, I, I can't be that bad." And then I, I didn't even hurt that much. Like I said, it just like you said, it felt like something was pushing where mm -hmm. it shouldn't, and it was like a mild pain. But then like three, four seconds after he took it out of my nose, I swear to God, I just started crying. Like, <laughs> like no, it's like it was totally felt like it was unprovoked, like out of nowhere. You know, like it must hit some land or pressure in your eyes. Maybe. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell you why it is, but it was very surreal. I'm like, I'm like, I felt like I was like, man, I'm not sad about anything, but I'm just crying. Like, <laughs> but yeah, you didn't find out that you had COVID yet. <laughs> No, I mean, I, I didn't have it, so I, I tested, I took the antibody one, too, and I tested negative for that as well. Okay. So, I, for me, it's like, I, you know, just to sidetrack for a little, I'm, I'm a total hypochondriac, you know. I don't know if you have had this at all. Like, has there been any time where you thought you had COVID? No, um, I felt pretty good. I had a sore throat for maybe a day and a half. Mm. Um, but, 
Uh, no, I'm definitely not really a, a hypochondriac. You know, as you know, I grew up wrestling. I did jujitsu. <laughs> you can't really be a hypochondriac and do do those kinds of activities. Yeah, I feel um, that. I think honestly, you might have the opposite problem. You're a uh, <laughs> <laughs> like you would you would be the kind of guy who would be like sick and just ignore it for like weeks at a time. You know, <laughs> like yeah, hey, I'll get to the doctor eventually. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> not in a negative sense. I don't mean to say this. Uh, I'm I'm the opposite though. I'm like I sniffle for a second. I'm like, all right, it's on WebMD. We're gonna find out. I have cancer. I have I have this type of cancer. I've got the you know. I, I look up every symptom. I, you, I go um, down a rabbit hole. Do you think there's any truth? And we're we're moving away from COVID a little bit, so we can circle back. Yeah. Uh, whenever yeah, you want. I've heard from like multiple sources the um the stereotype that men react to illness significantly worse than women do do you think that's true in, in what regard specifically like like they don't handle it well or like they don't take the like if they have like, like a, a cold like something minor mm-hmm. they just blow it out of proportion it's the end of the world i mean i think that's just jewish <laughs> 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 so yeah cut that cut that now i'm just kidding i i i just you know i think that's i, I have a i'm a i'm a nebishy jew you know i i i i I catastrophize right like as soon as like a mild inconvenience or bad thing happens I can't take it as is I have to think of the worst possible scenario mm-hmm. you know so I mean it's definitely a stereotype amongst Jews I mean it, I can't say it's true for Jews in general but it's definitely yeah. true of this Jew so <laughs> that's actually something I'd like to dive into a little bit if yeah. you want to go Shoot. in that direction Shoot. or if you want to go back to COVID yeah, it's any direction that's that's a subject that really hasn't come up on on this podcast yet is is religion well yeah religion in general but uh specifically jewish culture you know what is it about jews that just makes us such a neurotic people i mean it's got to be decades centuries of oppression right now you think so do you think that there is literally something built into the dna of jews that is just different like just you know 0.1 different than other people it, it's an interesting question i i guess you know we'll probably talk more about this in other regards because i do want to touch on this in another topic but mm-hmm. i'm kind of i think i lean stronger towards environment than genetics mm-hmm. in terms of the the nature nurture kind of debate right like mm-hmm. like i think that Maybe there's some truth that there, there, did you say like, there's all sorts of interesting research. You might know more about this than I do. I'm not that familiar. I've heard like where you have like generational, like, like people, like if you like live in, in poverty that you can like transfer anxiety and like stress. Yeah, like, definitely. You know, I, mean, I, I don't know a ton about this stuff, but um, I've definitely at least seen one TED talk where they <laughs> like, talk about this in, in yeah. pretty uh, interesting depth and, I mean, you can also, that, that's sort of the basis behind these mouse models of anxiety. You're consistently breeding mice, or you could do it with rats for that matter, that are more anxious and eventually producing a more anxious strain of, of mouse or rat. Yeah, Not, so, I mean, maybe I there's truth say, an, an, anxiety like behavior is yeah. <laughs> like yeah, because it's not like you're reading the uh, the rat's uh, <laughs> brain there. No, I mean it's it's an interesting question. Like, 
I, I kind of one of these things where I'm a little agnostic on it because I just feel like genetics is one of these things that's so hard to study. I, I just really like think that it's like, I mean, like they, they're able to, to look at this stuff, but it's just the sheer amount of data and genetic yeah. information is just staggeringly high. Yeah. That like, and then you're talking about so many confounding variables, right? When you try to study these things, like, how much of that is environment versus, yeah. you know, like you're trying to tease all these things out at once. And it's like, I'm not, you know, I'm not jealous of researchers who try to do that because it seems like very hard to me, but I guess I, I definitely I think, think there, 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 are, truth, there are strategies, but they're certainly like nothing yeah. perfect. Oh yeah. I mean, there's a lot of good research. I'm sure. Like I'm, I'm too dumb to understand it too. Anytime <laughs> people start talking about genetics, I just, I just like the codons and all this shit. And I'm just like, I, can't i just yeah, it goes I, above I, my I head wish, i wish i was good at that stuff <laughs> that's that's a that's not in my uh, pay grade you know i leave that to the the genetic people but i definitely think there could be truth that like there's some genetic component of of this kind of jewish like you said neurotic stereotype and then i also think a lot of it's just upbringing you know like i think i get that definitely from my mom who's mm -hmm. a very, I love her to death. She's a very stereotypical Jewish mom, you know? <laughs> um, but it's kind of funny too, because I feel like she's not as, she's not as much of a hypochondriac as I am and neither is my dad. Hmm. So I don't really know why I am that way. I think it's just for me, it's like probably a lot of, we could, we could use this as a sub, as a segue a little bit. I have horrible existential anxiety. Not like where I think about it often, but when I do think about it, it really fucks with my head. Like I, I, the, the idea of not existing really terrifies me to no end. And so I think that's probably a lot of the basis of my hypochondria is just worrying about death, right? You know, like it's not really worrying about the disease itself. It's just worrying about not existing in any format anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. See, I would much yeah. rather be dead than sick. Really? No. Uh, nope. See, I, <laughs> uh, th this is kind of, this is something I haven't really voiced on this podcast. Yeah. Yet. I don't, I think I, I fear death on like a primal level. Like if mm -hmm. you ask me to go run out into a highway, like my body is going to stop me. Yeah. But I don't think I'm afraid of the idea of death. Like to me, that just seems like a lack of pain lack of suffering i know i get what you're saying so like on one hand my right I, my right side brain right my like very logical scientific side says like well you don't really need to worry about this because like you won't exist so it doesn't really matter mm -hmm. your thoughts on on it right but my other like even though i can logically intuit that right and i can rationally think about that my brain still tells me like what does it mean to not exist? Like, it just, it just like, it's too, it too, it's so inconceivable. Yeah. I, I think it, that's it's what possible thing to think about because we have zero experience with it. Yeah. I think like it, we, we don't have the, the hardware, the biological hardware to deal with that kind of a problem. Yeah. And that's why I think like, even I, even if I can, have that logical thought to be like it's not something worth stressing about and i, and I don't want to make it sound like i'm like sitting at home all day like to come to get me you know like i'm like totally freaked <laughs> out all the time like i'm 
most of the time it's not a conscious thought I have, but I just think that really that's, that's the root of my hypochondria. I think for sure is that, that existential anxiety. Interesting. And I think maybe, you know, just circling back to our conversation before, I think that's probably the root of it for a lot of Jews too. I mean, like, you know, you think like how many, how many groups, how many times throughout history of Jews just been decimated, you know, rounded up, killed, discriminated more, more against. Fair. Yeah. Exiled. Like it's mm. just, it's, it's, I think we're, we're just a, a, as a people are always waiting for that other shoe to drop, you know? So I think that's, that's where the root of that, that so eroticism comes from. This is something really interesting. And now that I, th- I'm, I'm talking about it and thinking about it, I'm thinking about it at more levels. So I went on birthright last summer. Yeah. And as you have too. I have um, indeed. I found the Israeli Jews to be completely not nebbish at all. Very vocal, very confident, almost having a swagger to them. <laughs> but now that I think about it, a lot of the other Americans on that trip were like that as well. It kind of really redefined the way I looked at other Jews. Yeah. But it it almost seemed like the Israelis weren't Jewish. There was something completely different. <laughs> well, I think too, I think a lot of our perceptions of Jews come from New York City Jews. Yeah. Right? Like definitely. that's like who like who are who where's our perceptions really coming from? People we've interacted with. So yeah. New York City and New York Jews mostly, because that's where we live, right? Yeah. And then what what else do our perceptions come from? Television. Yeah. You know, and so I think that and like with any with any generalization, right? Like you're you're not capturing the whole picture. Like you're talking about a specific slice of whatever. Mm-hmm. So I feel like when when we have that nebbishy Jew stereotype, that's really that's like a New York City Northeast kind of Jew, I think. You know, whereas like Israel, they have to be that kind of the, those like you people said, that swagger. Are, they yeah. are hard people. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, I mean, it makes sense, right? Like you're, you're constantly feel like you're under threat, right? You constantly feel like you're under siege. I mean, it's that kind is of not existential mentality. anxiety. That is very real anxiety. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that's, I a hundred percent agree. Like it's a very different, but this is once again, this is why I tend to think that I side more on the environment as a source of a lot of our behaviors, because I would imagine there's not a huge difference actually genetically between a lot of yeah. Israeli Jews and American Jews. A, but a I lot think a of lot them of said that their families had immigrated there from Eastern Europe. Exactly. Which is the same place my family came from, yeah. right? Like, you know, it's most Jews <laughs> as you know, are a result of, you know, the diaspora in Europe. Right. And mm-hmm. we basically congregated in America and Israel and, stayed in a, in a lot of these places in Europe after the war, you know, so it, it genetically, I'm sure we're very similar, but the culture is just so different, you know, mm-hmm. in, in that kind of country where it's like, I remember I was, I was in a store, I swear to God, I, I must've been like, probably like two feet away from the counter, which now just thinking about is kind of scary. Yeah. It's like it was six feet, you know? Yeah. In Israel, I was like, and I was in a convenience store. I had a bunch of things in my hand, right? Like, 
I, it was like very clear. I was walking up to the register to, to, to pay, you know? Mm -hmm. And this guy walks in, grabs one, he literally just moves right in front of me, grabs one thing and puts it on the counter. Doesn't even look at me. Doesn't even, I'm not there. I just pretends I'm like, don't exist, you know? And, and, it Did doesn't think anything of it. Guy in Tel Aviv who basically said Israelis go right to the front of the line. Yeah. Okay. I, I got that same talk. It's it's real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like it was very funny too because and I know you know I'm a, like I went to Israel for what like a week and a half you know I'm only really describing. I mean it's not a huge country. Twenty country, days but, of of experience in Israel between the two of us. But I mean I for sure think there's a. Which is weird to me, too, because so much of the country is about, like, communal service and, like, you know, like, they have mandatory military service. Mm-hmm. And you, I would think that would breed, like, more of a camaraderie where it's, like, you would be, like, even, like, even more conscious of other people and, like, even more welcoming. But it almost creates this totally opposite thing where it's, like, everybody's, like, oh, I don't give a fuck. Like I just, <laughs> I don't really understand it. Just it hardens people. I don't know. It's, yeah, I think it. I think it just hardens people. It just makes them cynical and mm-hmm. and even more individualistic in a weird way. Like it's a different type of individualism than in yeah. America. You know, I don't know. It's yeah. very very odd. Yeah, um, uh, I feel like we could go a few ways here. I I'm, would be totally excited to keep talking about Israel, and I, I would kind of like to maybe talk a bit about the birthright trip. Because yeah. uh, I think that's a really interesting thing. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I'm curious about your, because I know we've talked about my birth rate trip, but I don't think I really talked to you too much about your experience. How was your experience there? I mean, it, it was an awesome experience. Um, it was really incredible. It was also extremely exhausting and overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. It's, you, know, you get no sleep. You're constantly around other people. So you kind of have to be socially on all the time like yeah. you went with your girlfriend which yeah, yeah on the one hand can be great i specifically kind of didn't go with anyone i knew and i think i i i don't know maybe i would have enjoyed it more if i was with like a close friend mm-hmm. i also think i made friends i'm also not the type of person that like makes friends really quickly and does well oh, I'm very long 100 percent. yeah I'm... so like if i can get someone like one-on-one or in like a very small group like i can do a lot better but like that's just not what birthright is great at i mean you have yeah. your little bus rides which is nice um i didn't one thing i think they did really well is they give you they definitely give you a little bit of israel propaganda you know, you get you get your couple of days, but I really didn't find it to be overwhelmingly pro-Israel and pro-Jews. I mean, it yeah. was. I mean, it really depends on the trip you take too, like because there's a wide range of birthright trips. Yeah. So, I, which which was the organization that you went through? Tugly. Yeah, so that's that's the one that I went through too. Mm-hmm. So that one is like tends to be kind of in the middle i would say you know in terms of like being very like not overly religious like you get you get a little bit of religion in there Mm -hmm. but it's not like but i know for example like we had friends who went on um with the jewish like very jewish organizations um i can't think of the name right now but 
one of the more popular um, kebab. That's it. So they went uh, through kebab, and it was just like uber religious. You know, mm-hmm. like the whole trip, you're you're like going to the most religious sites. You're you know you're you're doing constant prayer. You're mm-hmm. you're respecting every aspect. I mean, I don't know for you. Did you didn't you have to keep Shabbos right? Yeah, we did Shabbat. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, and then you. The, co- the whole country is basically kosher, so <laughs> yeah. Too hard to- I was shocked. I did not miss like non-kosher food. Yeah, but you were only there for like a week, though. Plus, you had good yeah. food. Keep in mind. Yeah, I, there was like one day where I was like pissed about the breakfast. <laughs> I mean, eating, I, I could eat falafel every day, probably. Oh man, their falafel oh. is just so good too. It's crazy. I remember I came back and I tried to find good falafel. Like the only place that was even remotely as good, and it was still wasn't nearly as good, was uh, Mamoon's. I uh, I I actually make my own. Oh yeah. And like it's fine, uh, but it, it's it's not like you're not yeah. Wait, it's like chickpea and what else? What else goes in the falafel? Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't think we'd be discussing this. Uh, like garlic, uh, um, red onion, if you want shallots. Um, it's not. It's, like, it's mostly like spices, though, right? It's what? like it's, the chickpea is really the base of the That's, falafel. Yeah. Yeah. That if you don't have chickpea, it's not a falafel. Yeah. So that that is the the substance. That's you know what I loved in Israel too that I think I really got way more of an appreciation for coming back from Israel. Pickled things. I never really yeah, liked pickled things that much, but every they fucking pickle everything in Israel. Yeah, it's great things. It's great. Like I, I just like I. When I came back from Israel was when I, I think I really started to get an appreciation for pickle things. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I quite got that level of pickle appreciation. <laughs> but yeah. Um. So for my my birthday trip, I found that there was definitely religious undertones. There was definitely the undertones of like, you should come to Israel and populate, you know, <laughs> replicate, multiply. Like definitely, definitely some, some propaganda mixed in there. Yeah. The, the weird thing, I, I was talking uh, with Sam Brown about this a lot. There's a weird thing, I think, in Israel where they're actually much more honest about the, the history there than, than American Jews that are like very pro-Israel and pro-Zionist. Mm-hmm. Where like they are just will tell you what happened. And, and no shame or like they you know what i mean seem to be very proud of their military history yeah there's no like qualms <laughs> about talking about like bombing like civilian uh british you know buildings you know like they'll just openly talk about that <laughs> like which is you know i mean i respect a lot more in a weird way like even though i so i you know we can get a little into this because you know i think it's worth talking about I'm definitely very critical of Israel, the government and the, the structure and the treatment of Palestinians, you know, and I don't think there's an easy answer. Like, I, I think it's a very complex question that I don't think anybody really has a moral leg to stand on in yeah. terms of the, in terms of the history of the two countries and their conflict. But I definitely weirdly appreciated how like upfront they were about the fact that they displaced people from their land which i feel like if you talk to a lot of american zionists they're very like 
try to pretend that mm-hmm. there was never like Israel never did. I, I actually didn't get that vibe. I didn't get the oh, yeah? opposite vibe. I, I I just I don't think that exp- that I crossed paths with. That yeah. Experience. Yeah. So. Yeah. So what in terms of like for you like what what did your where, where were like a lot of the places you went like where were they, was it mostly like nature based or was it like yeah a lot so of mine things? was like Israel outdoors so like we had like an extra camping night and a biking trip but we like, we did Jerusalem so we did you know the Western Wall we did uh the Jerusalem Market which was crazy we yeah. did that right before Shabbat that was nuts I've never been. <laughs> in a more crowded situation. In my God, life. can you imagine that with COVID? Yeah. <laughs> like just thinking of some of these things now, like it's crazy yeah. to think of. Um, we did Tel Aviv kind of briefly. We spent like a lot of time kind of in the wilderness. Tel Aviv is, so I just, real quick aside, I, I do want to hear more about your trip, but uh, me, me and Carly stayed in uh, um, Ramat Gan, which is right by Tel Aviv. It's like okay. 10, 15 minutes away. Um, in my grandma's apartment, she's a, an apartment in Israel, wow. and it Tel Aviv is so nice. Like it, it was so fun going back there, and I, I you can find a lot of time in Tel Aviv. Yeah, because you know why they don't spend time there? It's there's not really a lot of history. Party. Well, it's it's also yeah, it's it's a party thing, but it, there's really no history there. Like because it's all uh, new. Like it's it's a new city. It's there's not a lot of like interesting. Yeah. You yeah, know. big up and coming coming well not up and coming it's it's a big tech city it's here yeah um so but there's did. not a lot of like historical events that happen there like big like monuments mm-hmm. or like nature things to do so it's really not well suited you know mm-hmm. yeah um we did i think uh what what's is it Haifa that's up north? That's like the really yeah. religious city. It's up in the mountains, right? Probably up in the mountains. I we brought so. the Golan Heights very quickly. I think my cat's going to make an appearance. Golan Heights is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it really is. Um, yeah. We did the Dead Sea. I hated the Dead Sea. Uh, <laughs> and I admit, I was really? very much in the minority on this, but I really did not. I did d- very much dislike the Dead Sea. I wasn't a huge fan because you know what? It hurts. Yeah. It, it's painful <laughs> and it's salty and it was so warm when I went in. Uh, oh, yeah. So uh, did you guys do Masada? Oh, yeah, we did. Oh, yeah. It's kind of, um, so apparently that according to one of my, um, I, I don't remember what the right word is. I, I think of him as a camp counselor. I guess tour guide. Like the... Not like the Israeli person, but like the other yeah. Americans that are like, quote unquote, in charge of you or like, yeah. yeah. Um, she was like Mas- the gift shop at Masada is one of the better places to get like souvenirs and stuff. So I did a bunch of shopping there and it, it really does seem um, on the one hand, very disrespectful to uh to monetize the um suicide of um i, I don't remember the number a couple was a hundred a couple thousand yeah i don't know the scale but okay, a but lot to monetize the a suicide of, people. of a bunch of jews but on the other hand is there anything more jewish <laughs> than, than to monetize the catastrophe <laughs> I mean, it's capitalism, baby. Like, hey, hey. The, you got to monetize it anything. Happens, whether or not we make a buck off of it. 
I don't know if I'd say that it's cheers as much as just capitalism. Yeah, like, I, you, I, you might, anything's a product if you can market it the right way. <laughs> yeah. So I it's I just I, I had a good trip, but I I would definitely never live there. <laughs> mm-hmm. I I feel like it's you know I just I think that for me too it's like it's very hard to justify the existence of I get why people would say like okay we need a Jewish homeland because what happens if we have you know the next iteration of Jews being persecuted unfairly mm-hmm. and I and I get where that's coming from like I I totally understand that opinion like I I don't think it's completely without its merit like I do think there's some merit there but that to me that does not validate basically stealing millions of people's land and then on top of that even worse than that because i mean that's just history right like how many times throughout history have people conquered land from other people mm-hmm. like that's you know that's the country we live in right now is entirely stolen land like it's it's that's history but what to me i find very questionable is the idea that basically the entirety of palestine is just people live in a prison they can't go anywhere mm-hmm. they can't bring in goods that they want all of their goods are subject to israeli embargo mm-hmm. and to monitoring by the israeli government and they live in absolute shit like the conditions that they live in are just horrible like you read about it, it's just it's just awful and these people have no real solution and i do get where these israeli government so a lot of people will then will say well they launch missiles, right? They they support a government that is openly antagonistic and terroristic. And yeah, that may be true, but I think a lot of people, if they were in the same conditions as the Palestinians, would react the exact same way. Mm-hmm. And I and I, that's not to excuse what they do or say like it, it's not a problem, but at a certain point, it's like there's a reason why they launch rockets. It's not just because it's not just because they hate Jews like I I think there's that kind of and I'm not going to say there isn't a lot of anti-semitism I'm sure there is but there's a reason why right like there's a history where they've been oppressed by one group of people so it's not that irrational that they hate that group of people yeah um so I actually and I was a little surprised about this I, I was surprised about a lot of the ways I reacted my birthright trip but one of the things that happened not just immediately after the trip but in the kind of following weeks mm-hmm. is i would say that i became more pro-israel than i was previously and at a certain point in my life i was fairly anti-israel yeah um but i you know i kind of went and did my own research and this was maybe last august or so And I went into this looking, I literally Googled like Israel human rights violations. And I I have to say, I didn't find all that much to to support it. Like, I don't doubt that the Palestinian people are living in real poverty. So I don't know if that's just a reporting thing or if um, there is maybe some credence to the notion that anti-Israeli uh, sentiments is just another form of anti-Semitism. I'm not sure I agree with it. And maybe I think I believe it just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, just, just to close up, I went 
into this research looking for evidence that yeah. Israel was actively committing human rights violations. And the biggest thing that I found was that the occupation uh, of the West Bank is pretty much globally considered to be um, you know, a, a war crime. And it, it's bad. It's definitely bad. But um, I don't know. I, I think Israel gets just a little bit of a bad rap. I'd say that. Oh, I mean, so, so can, I, can I jump in real yeah. quick? You're 100% right that the criticism is not proportionate to the crime, right? Like, I think that it's not a coincidence that it, Israel is one of the few countries where when there's human rights, like condemnation, violation condemnations from the United Nations, they're one of the few countries that actually receives them, right? As opposed to countries like China, where they're rounding up, you know, Muslims. Literally committing genocide. Yeah, like, it's not a coincidence that Israel gets, you know, disproportionate criticism. Like, I think that's true. But to me, the the issue really is that... I So I kind of want to transition, actually, using this to transition to another topic. Yeah. Is that a big thing that we don't think about as violence but it is a very violent thing to do is sanctions right so when you when for example in palestine right anytime we're, we live in a global economy right nobody actually produces all of the goods in their country that they use mm-hmm. very very few percent even even in china right you look at the what the, the goods that are consumed in china the vast majority of goods in any country are produced outside of the country or with parts that are sourced from outside the country, right? Because nobody has all of the natural resources to produce all of the modern goods that we all rely and use. Mm-hmm. And so anytime we level sanctions, right? And actually in, in the case of Palestine, it's even more extreme than sanctions. It's actually embargoes. Literally like you cannot bring anything to the country unless the Israeli government approves of you bringing it in. Mm-hmm. And so what ends up happening is with a lot of these sanctions is the government will say, okay, well, you can't sell missiles. You can't sell all this stuff, which to any rational person, you go, okay, that's good, right? Like we don't want them to have missiles. We don't want them to have explosives. We don't want them to have X, Y, and Z. The problem becomes that then Israel will say, well, you can't have these specific chemicals that might be used to make a bomb, Right. But they also can be used for a huge range of consumer products <laughs> and things that everybody relies on and needs, right? Mm-hmm. And so this becomes a huge issue where obviously I get where, and once again, like I said, I, I do, I'm not saying like abolish the state of Israel. Like I have a more nuanced critique. Like I, I don't think there's an easy answer necessarily, but that what ends up happening with this embargo is you enter a scenario where they cannot get a, a huge range of goods because no company will do business with the Palestinian people. Because what they are afraid of is that they're going to sell something to the Palestinian people and then be sued by the Israeli government. And so this also happens with sanctions too. So for Iran is a perfect example of this as well. Right. So uh, currently, right, we have for a long time, a big part of the Iran deal was lifting sanctions that we had posed on Iran. And the goal of those sanctions, right, they were targeted, right, to certain things. You know, um, the U.S. government will often say, well, we're targeting consumer goods that the high-class the high people of that country would use. 
right? That's kind of the line of argument that the government will use to validate sanctions. But what ends up happening a lot of the times is companies as a whole will refuse to do business with any country that has sanctions, even if it's an unsanctioned item. Because what ends up happening is this is not something a lot of people are familiar with, is that for every sanction that's actually listed by the government, there are often a second round of sanctions. They call them secondary sanctions, where other items after the fact, they'll come in and they'll go, oh, you can't sell that to them. We're going to fine you $2 million, $5 million, $10 million for selling stuff that's very innocuous a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. Medical equipment, drugs. Uh, you know, of consumer products, things you would be like shocked. You'd be like, what? That doesn't make any sense. And then on top of that, the cost of doing business in these places goes up exponentially wow. because of the sanctions that are imposed. And so a big thing, like um, another good example of this is Iraq, right? So in the 90s, right, in the buildup to the Gulf War, we imposed a huge amount of sanctions on Iraq right we because because rightfully you know once again i i don't want to sound like i'm a saddam apologist like (laughs) saddam committed a lot of atrocities a lot of terrible shit but the problem becomes with a lot of these geopolitical issues there's no easy answer Mm -hmm. and right now people think of sanctions as these totally harmless thing right they think of it as a non-violent action but the reality is that most of the time when we level sanctions on countries it drastically increases things like child malnourishment and starvation and lack of medical equipment, lack of medical supplies, you know, like a a good example of this too is in in the modern context is Yemen. Right now in Yemen, we have a whole bunch of sanctions and we're supporting Saudi Arabia who's bombing uh, basically a, a group known as the Houthis who are, are opposed to the, I I'm, I'm mixing up, I can't remember if it's Sunni or Shia, but basically the, the Saudi Arabians oppose the Houthis. Mm-hmm. And so they're bombing the crap out of them in Yemen. And the U.S. has imposed sanctions and also supporting this bombing campaign. And right now you're seeing a giant outbreak of cholera in this country. A yeah, disease the, that, the situation in Yemen is pretty bad. Yeah. And, and the big part of why you're seeing a cholera outbreak is because they literally cannot get medicine because of the the sanctions that are being imposed on the country and you see this all over like anytime we level sanctions on countries generally it doesn't actually do much to change the behavior of the country and it leads to the conditions of the people who live in those countries to be much worse oftentimes leading to deaths literal deaths you know direct this person needed a medicine they couldn't get it and they died and so we need to stop thinking about sanctions as if they are nonviolent because mm-hmm. sanctions are inherently violent. They're generally going to lead to more death. They're going to lead to more human suffering. And you can still argue that maybe it's worthwhile. Like I'm not, I'm not saying you can never have sanctions, but I do want to kind of do away with the notion that sanctions are a purely peaceful thing because they're not (laughs) they're at the force of you know at the threat of force saying you cannot sell these people these products and so in terms of going back to israel palestine it's even more extreme than that because it's an embargo on the palestinian people Mm -hmm. so they have so much you know the 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 average lifespan there is just crazy low compared to most other countries because they live in such absolute shit conditions Mm-hmm. where the medical care is awful, the 
the food is awful. The housing supply is totally limited because the building supplies can't get it. Like, and I'm not saying that they're completely without blame. Like there is some truth that they don't necessarily use the best use of resources. But the reality is that Israel, by choosing to continue to do an embargo, is making the conditions of that country worse. Mm-hmm. And you can argue that it's valid. You know, we can have arguments back and forth. But I think that a lot of people who are pro-Israel won't really even acknowledge that. You know, I think there's kind of a kind of a pretend thing where it's like it's all their fault. You know, mm-hmm. it's it, if they just stop launching rockets, then the problem be solved. And I and I just think it's like I don't think there's truth to that at all. Actually, <laughs> I think that Israel as a country is pretty all right with the status quo of just keeping them you know, keeping them occupied, keeping them under the boot of their, uh, you know, under their boot for now. So mm-hmm. I, I kind of think that that's where direct human rights violations, like if, if you Google right human rights violations, you're not really going to see a description of that right mm-hmm. in there. But I, I would consider that personally a big human rights violation. Yeah, I, I, I would as well. Yeah, you definitely. Uh opened my eyes to a, to a lot of things there that I'm yeah. going to have to follow up on. Um, I mean, sanctions, I'll, I'll hit you with a podcast. I have a podcast. I would, I don't want, I feel weird recommending a podcast on your podcast. You can, you but, can recommend someone else's uh, podcast. A big podcast I love is a podcast called Citations Needed. And they did an episode specifically on sanctions where much better research than me, much more coherent about cool. why sanctions are not a not an, an a violent thing right mm-hmm. they they are a form of violence you can argue maybe that they're valid form of violence or that they're justified mm-hmm. but you should at least grapple with those facts to begin yeah. with which i think a lot of people don't really kind of grapple with yeah it's cr- crazy man humans yeah. are the only animal smart enough to engage in warfare at a global level and the only animal stupid enough to actually do it. <laughs> Very true. Like, and spend $700 billion mm-hmm. pretending that we're going to do it. Like, you'd think there, there's enough things in the world to make you happy that you don't have to go and commit war. Like, if you really feel like you need to go nuke another country, just, like, aggressively masturbate. For, like, <laughs> 30 minutes. We just need to provide Pornhub to all the generals. Get, get all those feelings out. Smoke a joint. Drink something. It's it's crazy. How have human? How have humans come to this point? And it's it's not even that we've come to this point. We've been at this point for a long time. So I mean, we desensitize violence. I, I really think that's a big element of it, right? That like you otherize the group that you're committing the violence against, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in the example of Palestine's, or even the Palestine's towards Israelis, either side, right? They otherize the other group. These are people are an enemy. These people are creating worse conditions, yeah. unsafe conditions for me. They, you know, it's like you're, and in that case, it's like, it is a real struggle. Like, I, like actually, weirdly enough, in that, in that case, I understand the violence. The other case I don't is where it's like, our country is like, um, two buildings got blown up and 3,000 people died, you know, an ob- obvious tragedy. Let's go attack a country that has literally nothing to do with it <laughs> and overthrow their government. You know, it's just, uh, that's the kind of shit I don't understand where it's like, 
literally had there's no reason why we had to do that it didn't accomplish anything it made the situation worse but if you just convince people out there an enemy if you have cole and Powell go out there and make up some bullshit about how saddam is meeting with al-qaeda then you can just convince millions yeah. of people to support a war on, on the other hand this is how humans have operated for their entire existence just uh. groups of animals fighting for territory and resources with other animals. Yeah. So, you know, how I, I'm kind of asking this hypothetically, cause we could yeah, spend shoot. a whole podcast just talking about this, but how do we divorce ourselves from that mindset? I think the clearest path is psychedelic drugs. I mean, I don't know if I'd agree with that. I, <laughs> I, I'm not even like to say like, I think they're bad. I think psychedelic drugs are good. If like for a lot of people, I just think that people need to be more empathetic in general. Yeah. And maybe for some people that path is taking psychedelic drugs and breaking down those barriers. But just like I, I, to me, it's like, it's kind of crazy to think that when we talk about the Iraq war, we don't talk about the 500,000 to a million dead Iraqis mm-hmm. as like the tragedy of the Iraq war. No, if, if we're talking about in America, what's, what's the tragedy that we mentioned? What are, what are the bodies that we consider important to talk about? Yeah. U.S. soldiers. That's the only, like if you're, if you're the, oh, with 3,000 or 4,000, 5,000, whatever the number is, I don't remember off the top of my head, U.S. soldiers died. That's what leads any newspaper that talks about the tragedy of the Iraq war not the 500,000 to a million dead people that we went into their country and killed them. So, and I think a lot of that just comes back to empathy. Like it's very hard for a lot of people to empathize with a group that they're not part of. Yeah. And I don't really know how you, it's one of these things I I seen this about like coronavirus specifically where it's like, I don't know how to convince you to care about other people. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, how do you, how do you convince someone that an Iraqi has worth or that, a you know, that, a or how do you convince a Palestinian that Israeli or an Israeli that a Palestinian has worth and, and doesn't deserve to be killed? Like, I don't think there's really an easy way to break through that, you know? So I, I mean, I, I talked about this on the podcast with Raf. Um, yeah. And now I'm blanking on the, na- the name of the, the special, but Darren Brown's thing where he tries to, he can, he can the whole thing is he convinces this guy who openly dislikes illegal immigrants to take a bullet for uh, a Mexican. Yeah. So, you know, it was a very intensive and very manipulative process. <laughs> so, you know, we, we've, um, anyway, we, we've gotten way off of uh, some of the topics that you, you mentioned. Oh, yeah. No, I, I knew it was going to happen. I, I knew we were going to. I figured that'd be the case. <laughs> yeah. You want to uh, circle back to some of the things? Yeah, let's, 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 talk, let's talk about, I do want to talk about the government's response to coronavirus because I, I do think it's a very, because I do think coronavirus is a very interesting thing to talk about, but I actually think the much more interesting implications of it have to do with everything else related to it, right? Like the economy, like the government's response. So I just saw an article right before we got on the on the podcast where I was like, really have my blood boiling it was uh congress is not going to be back in session until september they couldn't couldn't reach a deal on coronavirus relief so none of us are getting any relief Mm. not that i really need it in this case but 
we're looking at a case. I, I don't know if you saw this. There was a, a housing study just published recently where they looked around all around the country, right? And I think Vermont actually did the best in the, in the study. Vermont's kicking ass right now. Um, well, the study Maple said, so, so this, is, this is the best state. I think if I remember correctly, Vermont, 25% of renters in Vermont are at risk of being evicted within the next month. That was and the, that was the low end. That was the low end. There were states where it was high as 50% of renters could face eviction within the next month if they don't have economic relief. I mean, you, you think we, we've had riots this summer and now just wait until you kick people out of their homes during a global pandemic on a massive scale. It's, that, that's it's, how you get riots. It's horrifying to think about. Like, it, it truly makes me real that's like that's that's you know we went to, we we're talking about existential anxiety this is like like real anxiety where i'm like societal mm -hmm. breakdown like if you if you kick out 50 percent of renters that's probably like 10 to 20 percent of the population in any of these places you're looking at you're looking at kicking would, out 10 i'd say that's a low estimate that might, yeah maybe i'm i don't know what the the breakdown of like homeowners versus home renters but that's that's in just unimaginable like the the level of human suffering and like you said on top of that in the middle of a fucking pandemic how do you think you spread pandemics you kick people out of their home and make them congregate yeah. in the street it's that's it's fucking lunacy um i'm yeah. gonna get on my soapbox 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 for, for a little bit i i meant to do some research about this at some point i think i thought about it several weeks ago and uh never followed up on it but I'm so sick of people in Congress and Senate who are in no way, shape, or form representative of the American people making decisions for the American people. Like, I just... And I, I wanted to have, like, statistics about, like, how white... Um, old, old, especially in rich, white, rich, Christian, whatever. Eh. Like it's just, it's not representative. And I, I really feel that we need to move to a more, a direct democracy where people are actually voting on specific issues, not just specific candidates. I mean, it's, I, I think we should move to a, a different model of government definitely one way or another i don't know what it is i just can tell you that this shit is not working <laughs> like what we have now is is not good like it is because I, I think you know definitely for i agree like it's too white it's too christian it's too removed from the but to me the biggest one is it's too rich mm -hmm. none of these people know what it is like to be an average like working class american i, I don't at all. i don't want to say none because there are some really a handful a handful there's a handful but yeah you know but they're they're few and far between and the thing too is they become removed from the situation very quickly after becoming part mm -hmm. of congress because the average congress salary is like a hundred some plus thousand dollars they get paid that just for being in congress yeah that is nuts that is a that should be a service position you shouldn't be making anything, in my opinion. Well, I mean, I, I can like see, a living I can see some a living yeah. stipend. All it is is the average. So I think some people don't understand that the average American wage, like the median 
American salary is $30,000 a year. You know, that is, that is, you're talking about probably four times what the average American makes. So, and that's not to say like, that's the sole reason they're out of touch, but you know, I think a lot of it has to do with more pernicious reasons that I do want to get into in a little, maybe like after we're done with this conversation, but how can you relate to 40% of renters that are about to be kicked out of your home when you're still making a hundred thousand dollars a year for fucking doing nothing? You're, you're going home for two weeks. You don't even have to do your fucking job and you're still getting paid that money. (laughs) Like It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know if I how I feel about direct democracy though. I don't know if I can agree with that though. Actually, yeah. I, I mean, this is mostly a half baked idea <laughs> that I came up with the other day. I mean, we... well, trust me, that's how most of uh, Congress's <laughs> ideas exist too. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, I feel like people are so generally removed from congressional and Senate elections. Like, yeah. apparently, Vermont voted just a few days ago. I didn't know about it until the day <laughs> of, because one campaign sign, people are pretty crazy about their local politics in Burlington. One sign said, vote August 11th. Uh-huh. And I, I think it was the primaries, so not the actual elections for yeah. Congress and Senate and for... Was know, it for the, national elections or just local local primaries? I think there were... Uh, congressional primaries too. Oh, okay. Um, but I knew basically nothing about them, and then I did a quick Google, <laughs> and I, I didn't, I couldn't find any like concise source of information. Oh, so it's the I, worst, dude. If I tried to vote like recently for um, like local elections, so like congressional elections, you can. It's already hard to find information for like a national congressional election, but at least you can usually find like a website. Well, oftentimes you can find like on the issues.org or like other like third party sites, you know, that will try to track like congressional elections. Once you get to a local or state level election, good luck. Good luck finding any information about those candidates because like I, especially at state level, you can find some usually mm-hmm. local elections, nothing, no information, no platforms. I, I was like, what? I'm basically just choosing whose name I like better. I, I, there's I, no I information. Give some credit to um, the Vermont Public Radio ads on my podcast app, saying that they were <laughs> be hosting the um, the primary debates, which I promptly I said, "Oh, I should tune into those," and then promptly forgot to tune in. So <laughs> I, I should give a little credit where credit is due. Uh, yeah, Vermont take, Public take Radio. a little ownership about my own uh, ignorance and. Um, and irresponsibility. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll absolve you of your sins. As someone who's tried to like really hard to look into this information, it's often very hard to find like useful information, especially about a local election. Like, I don't even know what, like I've tr- I tried to just figure out like what is like, we have like freeholders, I think is what they're called. And I'm just like, what do, what do they do? Like I like tried to find their job description. Like what are they voting on or like, what is their powers? Like, what are they actually, you know, deciding in my life? I, I couldn't I, even find I, that information. Somewhat new, like a, a county freeholder in, in Scotch Plains when I was in, uh, when I was in high school. I never asked him what he actually did. Though. <laughs> I don't think they even know, honestly. Not. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it's just weird. Like, 
Because, and I think there's a big issue with that in general, where it's like, most people are totally checked out of politics. And I think with good reason, mm -hmm. the, the simple fact is that, and I, you know, I don't want to strand sounding like I'm just saying like, they're all the same, that there's no difference. Like, I don't, because I don't believe that. That's not true. There, there definitely are stark differences between the parties. But the reality is that no matter who you vote for, just based on the way our system exists, very little change is likely to happen one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this is, and this, just going back to, to changes that I want to see personally, I, I don't know if I agree with direct democracy, but I think we should abolish the Senate. The Senate as an institution should not exist. It is, it is an anti-democratic system. It explicitly says that if you're from a small state, you, you're from Wyoming, right? You got 300,000 people live in Wyoming, I think mm -hmm. it is. There are 38 million people who live in California, mm -hmm. okay? There's 100 people in California for every one asshole in Wyoming. <laughs> but that Can't one that asshole... In the sky, let's not shit on Wyoming. <laughs> Well, I'm not saying every person. I'm just saying I'm just choosing an asshole in Wyoming. Okay, <laughs> I didn't I didn't say every person, but for every one person in Wyoming, there's a hundred people in California, but they have an equal amount of power when it comes to the Senate. Yeah, well, that's crazy. That's I, that's ludicrous. I wouldn't say I disagree with you, uh, and I I got into this on my podcast with my dad. A yeah. bit more on the topic of the electoral college. Yeah. Um, I get the sentiment that people in smaller states feel they need additional representation on a relative level. Otherwise, their needs will be put to the side. On the other hand, maybe they should be put to the side because they're a minority <laughs> of the country. <laughs> Yeah, so let me, yeah, so I, I, I get where they're coming from, but I just think that as we currently exist, it's clearly the other way around, right? Like, like yeah, maybe it's true that, like, if you switch to a purely population-based system, that maybe some of these small states would get pushed around. But I kind of think it's, like, either way, either way, one, one group is dictating the power, right? Because as it currently exists, you have small states having more power proportionately to the size of the state and, and larger states having much less power than their proportional size. So it's either going to go one way or the other, right? And to me, just on a logical level, the more fair system is the more people you have, the more power you should have within an existing system. I mean, I, I, I can't really justify that with any type of high-minded, rational argument. It just seems fair to me. I mean, I, I'm not going to say yeah, that, like, I'm the... What did you say? Sorry. Uh, no, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. And it's, it's, like, it's like, I get where people are coming from. <laughs> Carly's in the corner. She was looking at me. She wanted to join the podcast. No, nah, no, nah, I don't think she wants to join the podcast. Um, but I get where people are coming from when they say they don't want these little states to be, to run roughshod, to get run roughshod over. But it's like, at a certain point, it's like, they're the ones running roughshod over us. We have, we, so for example, right, the Democrats consistently win more votes in the Congress, in the, in the House, more votes in the Senate, 
and more votes in the presidency, but somehow don't win any of those branches of government consistently. Yeah. I mean, I think gerrymandering has a pretty big uh, role to play in that. Huh, yeah, so gerrymandering with the Democrats aren't guilty of that too, but yeah, I, the gerrymandering I, in the House is is why the House is like that. But also, a, a big issue is it's not just gerrymandering. Like that's a definitely a huge reason why. But there's also a natural kind of gerrymandering where you have a, the predominant groups of Democrats where they live is in these big cities. Mm-hmm. And so obviously Republicans take advantage of that and they gerrymander to, to take advantage of that. But on top of that, it's just that more of these rural spread out areas and suburban areas are dominated by Republican voters. Mm-hmm. And so even even if you like, did a, tried to do a more objective mapping, right? Which which a lot of states have tried to do. You still often end up with Republicans faring better in a lot of these congressional races. So it's it's definitely, but I, I don't want to undersell that and make it sound like that's the only reason. 70, 80% of it's because of straight up fucking cheating. <laughs> straight up people just drawing districts so that they win you know mm-hmm. nine times out of ten and it is true that you know democrats have gerrymandered in certain states maryland's a good example um that's probably the, the one that people go to most of the time when they talk about democratic states new jersey is a little bit if you look for sure but if you compare like just on a numbers basis so um the brennan center for justice i forget which university it is i, I want to say it's like one of these big state universities they did a really good so they actually got a case in front of the supreme court um about a year or two ago now i want to say and they fucking of course the supreme court turned them down like the hacks they are (laughs) but basically the supreme court has ruled has what's that shots fired yeah definitely i'm coming for you supreme court (laughs) Did, did, did you see on the basis of sex zach i did it's a good movie. Movie, yeah. <laughs> but but the the courts rule basically that you cannot overrule congressional primary map on the basis of political identity, meaning that even if you can prove because so it's funny too because this 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 really goes to prove how hacky they are, and and just why why they can they're not they're not an apolitical institution because. A couple years before this, they said who, to the, who are you talking about specifically when you the, say the Supreme not, Court. Okay. They said a couple years ago, like three, four years ago, that case came before them, very similar case where state Democrats were suing Republicans, saying these are unfair maps that they drew. And the court said, We are sympathetic to the idea that uh, partisan cheating is not fair and is is hurting the rights right of people to vote. But you guys cannot prove, you don't have a way of proving mathematically that this is happening, right? This is, this is what John Roberts, who is the, the high-minded, uh, you know, non-ideological, um, centrist, you know, all this bullshit that people frame him as this, you know, the, the adult in the room really making the, the unbiased decisions. He wrote all this, right, in his decision saying, basically, come back to us. If you can, if you can prove with a formula, <laughs> right? with math, right? Some, some arbitrary, some not arbitrary, some objective measurement mm-hmm. that gerrymandering is occurring and hurting one party, right? Then you can come back to us and we can argue this case again. 
because right now you can't prove to us that this is actually happening. Yeah. Then two years later, they come back and they go, okay, we have the formula. It works. It's really good. Like we can show that it's like a very objective measurement of this thing and the Republicans are clearly cheating and they go, oh, just kidding. We don't really care about that. <laughs> it's because it's, 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 it's all bullshit. It's, it's, it's all because John Roberts is a Republican through and through. And he knows that if he votes against that, that's going to hurt Republicans. Mm -hmm. And he does. He, that's why I just hate to like that. Basically the Supreme court has just become another iteration of basically politics. Like yeah. it's it just, I mean, I think it always has been, I don't, I don't think you can have an apolitical court system. Mm -hmm but I just hate when people pretend like it is. That's the shit that bothers me. Like, I, it doesn't even bother me that it is political. It's just that like you, you will read like reports from like court observers and they act like it's like totally unbiased, you know, it, you know, objective judgments when it's like, no, he just clearly knew that was going to hurt Republicans and decided yeah. against. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. Uh, it, it, there's just a lot of issues with the system, but to me, the biggest is the Senate. Because the Senate, as it exists, basically is the most, it's the most important institution of our government. They're the ones who write most of the laws. They're the ones who hold up. Like the House constantly passes bills, right? Mm -hmm. But most of the time, those bills will never pass the Senate. Like yeah. The Senate's usually the, the body that holds everything up. And the Senate approves everybody on the, on the courts, mm -hmm. right? They basically control the courts. And so as we have it said now, all of the power in our country is given to these tiny, small states because they're able to control the Senate. Republicans are able to control the Senate with a minority of voters, mm -hmm. about 40% of voters. They can, this is all it takes for them to make a majority. Wow. That's, that's not sustainable. <laughs> if, yeah. you'd say, if you consistently have 40% of people dictate what should happen for the other 60%, that's just going to breed resentment and inevitable issues right like but the problem is like people if you say that right if like if you were a politician and you said we need to abolish the senate you'd be laughed out of the room you would be you know like and the and the problem too is the system by itself the way our system the way our founders set up our system right you cannot change it like they like i i'm i'm talking about this and i'm putting it out there but it's it's never going to change Mm -hmm. because in order to change anything you need two-thirds of the group of people to agree to something mm -hmm. when was the last time we got two-thirds of people in our government to agree to fucking anything it's, it's never gonna happen yeah. it's it's just it's just a permanent form of log jam mm -hmm. and and it's very funny too because when the founders created all these institutions right they were very explicit in the weaknesses right like like they wrote a lot about how these systems could potentially fall apart, right? And one of the big things they wrote about was factionalism, right? That if you have two ideologically coherent groups that are opposed to each other, right? Like you have Republicans who generally kind of hold the same views and you have Democrats who generally kind of hold the same views, that will make the system fall apart. Like, yeah. you know, Jefferson wrote explicitly about this, right? And, and so did Hamilton saying basically like if we get two parties this will destroy our government <laughs> right it will make it unable to actually create any new legislation that responds to the situations you know that are happening and nothing will will change and the government won't be able to work anymore yeah and that's where we're at and the government doesn't work 
like I said, 40% of people are about to be fucking kicked out of their homes. And these motherfuckers can't even come together to be like, give us, a, you know, a tiny, tiny, what, like $1,200 for six months or some bullshit. You know, it's like, yeah, the system is broken and it's not going to, it's not going to change by fixing it on the margins, right? It's not going to, we're not going to change the system by electing a handful of new congressmen. You know, I'm not saying like, don't vote. Like, it's not hard. Go out and vote. You know what I mean? Like, but the problem is we need deep structural reform in this country. We need to change the entire system that we have and how we legislate. But the very system itself will never allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. So how is that going to change ever? It won't. It's just, it's really depressing. Yeah. Did it feel good to at least get that off your chest? Uh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> good. Abolish the Senate. Fuck right. the Senate. <laughs> All right. Let's man. end on that. Dad, I, think. Yeah, I, I feel like we didn't even get through. All, we didn't even get through all the topics you wanted to. I'm gonna have to. Have no, it. I knew we weren't. I that's um, I I put this out there, yeah, but I'm like I know I I'm gonna go on. And we got on something. It was like the two two more paths branching out. So, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have to have. I mean, I knew that was gonna happen. I was like, I'm I'm gonna suggest things, but I know I'm not even gonna get to them. So yeah. that it is what it is. All right. <laughs> all right, well, man. It's good talking to you. For coming on, I I hope you had a good time. Uh, oh, uh, Carly said hi. Uh, hi, Carly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Carly, I mean, I'd probably come on again. So if if you ever if you ever need another guest, just hit me up. Maybe in a couple months or something. Yeah, Better be down again. All right. This has been right. Steinfeld Talks, Episode Seven. All right, everyone. <laughs>